This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Welcome to The Cartographers, a podcast that charts our changing cultural landscape and provides hope for 21st century Christian leaders. We are Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales, a pastor and a PhD. Welcome to this conversation. We are in the middle of a new series here at The Cartographers called Stuck in the Middle. So if you feel stuck in the middle as a Christian leader between people on the right and people on the left, and you don't know where to go, this series is for you as we chart a way through the current changing cultural landscape of 21st century America. And so today we have invited Mark Laberton. He is the former president of Fuller Theological Seminary to chat with us as he presents an alternative framework to the culture wars. It's not culture wars, but it's exile. Listen in. When the circumstances have decimated your identity now, who will you be? This is a question that Mark Laverton asks in his lecture, Beauty in Exile, given at Fuller Seminary in 2017. And we are so delighted to have Mark on the podcast. Mark Laverton has served as the Clifford L. Penner Presidential Chair Emeritus and Professor Emeritus of Preaching at Fuller Seminary. He served as Fuller's fifth president from 2013 to 2022. Before that, he also spent six years as senior pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley, California. He's the author of several books, and we are excited to talk about particularly the theme of exile and the way in which that might be an alternative to the cultural wars. So thanks so much, Mark, for being with us. Of course. Delighted. Happy to be here. Mark, uh, here at The Cartographers, we are trying to help Christian leaders in and outside of the church chart a way through the changing cultural landscape of 21st century American culture. And part of that landscape looks like the culture war dynamics that have been elevated to it just feels like a fever pitch in the last decade. And uh, so I'm really excited to talk with you Um Today, I mentioned before we started recording that Ashley and I uh, have lived in Pasadena on, on a couple of occasions, and uh, so we kind of have that uh, connection there. But, but really, um, I'm excited to talk with you because we, we launched this podcast really to give Christians an alternative to the culture wars. And I feel like I have been uh, searching for an alternative paradigm. We, we tend to think in terms of, of right versus left. And it has just struck me that uh, what we need is a totally different way of thinking about this. And I came recently across your lecture, uh, Beauty in Exile, and it sort of just hit me like this is what I think I've been looking for. And so I'm I'm hoping that you can uh, unpack this for us a little bit. In your lecture, you talk about two paradigms that characterize the people of God, especially in the Old Testament. And so the first paradigm you talk about is the paradigm of Exodus. 
And I'm sure that many of our listeners are familiar with the story of the Exodus, but could you help us understand what you mean by calling the Exodus a paradigm? Yeah, sure. Exodus is a kind of paradigm. It's a model. It's a, it's a narrative, a story, a, a reality that Israel experienced of, of finding its identity in a way that it had never really fully understood. Though, of course, there had been the identity that God gave to us as human beings made in God's image. Then there was the specific formulation that was given to Abraham, who was going to be used by God to, to help initiate a people more numerous than all the stars in the sky, and an identity that was meant to be God's people. That becomes problematic for a whole bunch of different reasons as the book of Genesis uh, unfolds. And eventually, uh, we come to the place where where Egypt has now taken Israel captive and for 400 years have lived under this oppressive regime. So we enter the narrative in that moment with an overwhelming sense of of hopelessness and despair. It seems as though this this multi-century long burden of being taken captive, of living under oppressive government and power is is simply the chokehold on their life. But then the text says, but God heard the cry of his people and, and responds. And ultimately the narrative explains that God made a way for Israel to come out from under that bondage. And it's that which we call now the Exodus, the Exodus from Egypt uh, into first the wilderness and then a further Exodus into the promised land itself. And that paradigm is a paradigm. It's a model for what I would say Jesus picks up on, where we are still moving from death to life. We're still moving from oppression and bondage into freedom and new life. We're moving from one circumstance which overwhelms us and governs us the rule of, and reign of sin to the new life that is given to us in which the bondage of sin has been uh, broken and new life literally in the sense of resurrected life, but also uh, life currently in our day in and day out existence as the resurrection is being lived today. So it unfolds over the course of our lives now and into eternity. So that paradigm becomes a paradigm that's used and used for all kinds of things that describes this common human experience from oppression to new life. And whether it's out of a faith context or not, that movement is not uncommon. But in Israel's life, it has a very specific set of parameters. It has content. It has a purpose. It has a meaning. It has a, a God who is shaping the narrative and making it possible to move out of what would otherwise have been certainly humanly impossible. Now, that is also a paradigm that is then used, I think, in many, many ways, and, and we all know it, as a descriptor of America itself. So many Europeans who were fleeing what they experienced as the brutality of oppression against the Christian faith led many people of Christian faith to leave where they were in Europe and to come to the shores of the United States. And that has, from early, early days, been seen as a kind of exodus experience, going from a place of oppression to a place of freedom. That narrative gets complicated for all kinds of reasons because our narrative intersects then, as Israel's did, with the people that were already in the land, who we could call indigenous or first peoples, and and in a way that is like what Israel does. So the American 
movement west becomes a paradigm of of basically taking the land claiming it for uh for christian enterprises and peoples and oppressing and uh, overwhelming really those who are already in the land this gets exaggerated even further when the land then gets developed in part in significant part by the importation of millions of slaves who don't come to these shores because it is their promised land, but they come as hostages to live under the regime now, heavily instituted in part by Christian voices, not entirely, but including Christian voices, who adamantly supported the legitimacy of this as a, as a working out of the purposes of God so that the people of God, the church, could live in this new land. So it's a, it's a prominent paradigm and for many, many people, that is the way that the, the nation of America, the United States, is seen. And it is one of the reasons why Christian nationalism is on the rise, because there is embedded in that a reclamation of that sort of paradigm that says we need to go back to that, that narrative, reclaim America as a Christian nation, as a Christian land, and do whatever is necessary to take our nation back. It's, it's going back into that same narrative uh, now instigated under new terms in, in a new era. But then the second paradigm is is the one that I think uh, you were referring to about exile. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we could probably spend a lot of time talking about um, problems with applying the, the promised land kind of paradigm, the Exodus paradigm to a country that is not mentioned uh, covenantally in scripture, uh, just to put it simply. Um, but, but the second paradigm you talk about is the paradigm of exile. Why don't you, uh, help, help us understand that, that paradigm. So in the Exodus paradigm, Israel is simply taken hostage and oppressed and God presumably allows this to happen, uh, in Israel's life. But in the case of the exile, it's very, very different. It's not that God simply allows Babylon to do what Babylon was prone to do, namely conquer people. But in this case, God actually sends people into Babylon. God sends Israel into Babylonian captivity. And here it's not about a passivity. There's no argument that that this is over simply Babylon overwhelming Israel. It's Israel being blessed by God to overwhelm Israel and to take Israel captive. Now, how could we ever understand such a thing theologically? Well, in the major and minor prophets, a great deal is written about God's efforts and the extremes to which God went to say, yes, you have my name, you know my name, you do all kinds of things in my name, but you fail to reflect my name by how you actually live. And prophet after prophet names this, and Israel again rebuffs this and refuses to be changed. So God seems to suggest then through the various prophets that the only way to break the back of this unwillingness to yield is to strip away all the blessings, the land, the temple, the sacrificial system, all the things that had made Israel Israel, and now put them into isolation in Babylon, radically different context. And while historians don't believe that all of Israel literally moved to Babylon, some were taken into Babylon and many were left in Israel. And those who were taken into Babylon in part were meant to be people curated by Babylon to go in and become influential leaders as Babylon continued its rule. Now, 
it, it's in that period of time that the temple is destroyed, the temple's desecrated, the land is stripped of Israel. Now they land themselves in Babylon and are meant to live a different kind of life, or actually to live the same life God's been calling them to all along, but now to do it stripped of all of its positive benefits and to ask, who are you now? And what do you believe when you're strangers in a strange land? I think it's so powerful, um, you know, to turn when we are in this paradigm of Exodus, right? When we experience bad things or lack of comfort or power or authority, we, you know, cry out to God. Um, but it becomes kind of the cycle, like we see in the book of Judges, where we we want God's stuff, you know, but not actually God. And and um, we we're not a blessing to the nations like God calls His people to be in Genesis twelve, and so you know, we can even see exile as somehow not a blessing, not a grace, um, when in fact it is. And I think that's such a key, key thing for us to understand this paradigm of exile as, as a grace. Right. And which I think Jesus also, like the Exodus, extends in his own teaching. So the peculiarity of God's people, and let's just use the Sermon on the Mount as an example of that, the Sermon on the Mount is an exilic text. It's for what faithfulness as exiles looks like. And as we know throughout the book of Matthew, but particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, you have this very amazing distillation of how distinct and peculiar and odd and unexpected God's people are meant to be in a context which is completely not like the world that Jesus is describing in the sermon. And and there have been whole theolo theological paradigms that have been in place, especially in the United States, that have moved all of that to a later era in which the dispensation is going to be coming, that God's people will look like the Sermon on the Mount. But if you don't accept that paradigm, if you actually let the paradigm stand as it does, I think, in the New Testament, it's actually very much meant to be a call to how we're actually living now and not something which admittedly will be ultimately fulfilled in this life, but it is actually meant to be begun right now, right where we are, and has been true since Jesus gave the teaching. So that then calls us to say, oh gosh, we're really meant to live in a very distinct way. But meanwhile, the narrative that the American church, and really churches in other many other countries, but let's just stick with America for a moment, uh, in the United States, the, the United States church, especially the white church in the United States, has really been groomed to think of itself as the inheritors of this promised land. And when things go wrong and the narrative becomes complicated and perhaps it begins to feel like we're living as exiles, then the response is, well, that can't be right. It's got to be that we have to simply go back and recover, reclaim, restore the promised land, which is why it's it depends so much on looking back in nostalgia, which is to say euphemistically, without a critical understanding of history, with a desire only to look at positive benefits, for example, and then fail to understand that, no, maybe actually we've moved from promised land into exile because of our own doing. And now we live in the context of a culture which we ourselves have abandoned and not been salt and light. And in that context, in any case, we are now A, a minority population, and B, called to a distinctly different life that is not about recovering the narrative of the past. 
Yeah, and, and in the in your lecture, you you said uh, the exile is an implicated act on our behalf. We are the bad guys, and I mean that gets at what you're talking about now. It strikes me that the Exodus Promised Land uh, paradigm implicit in that is if we're not experiencing the benefits, the blessing of of the Promised Land. Um, there's this sense that we're sort of the victim in, in that arrangement. And so then it makes sense to adopt the kind of warrior posture of something we deserve has been, you know, unceremoniously, like unrighteously uh, taken away from us, which is a completely different mindset than we are peculiar people living in a land that is not our own, and yet we're called to be faithful. But we're also here to learn something um, because of what we have brought upon ourselves. That's right. So a classic text that relates to this, or let's just point to two. On the one hand is Isaiah 58, where there's nothing Israel is more proud of than its worshiping life. And yet, through the words of the prophet, the condemnation falls on Israel for its false worship. And the text uses the language for you seek me as though you, as if you were people who practiced righteousness with a kind of stinging rebuke because you're not people who practice righteousness. And, and so it turns out that your worship, which is claiming to be about me is actually all about you. That's what Isaiah 58 is about. And then what it would take to reverse that pattern and to live a new kind of worship. Now, the same sort of theme is present, for example, in a text like Jeremiah 29, where, where yes, as exiles, you, you will one day be returned to the, to the promised land. But for the moment, the work that you're to do is to actually enter into the life and to pursue the welfare of, your, of the city, it says. But what is the city? The city is your enemy. So pursue the welfare of your enemies for in their welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, this again is consonant in my mind with the teaching of Jesus when he says, it's not a big deal if you love those who love you. The question is, are you prepared to love those who don't love you? And in fact, those who are your enemies. That's really the Jeremiah 29 call. So the question is, are we prepared to learn to love our enemies? We suddenly are then run short of ourselves very quickly. I can't love my enemies. I don't want to love my enemies. I think this is a bad idea. Let's just go back to the back to the to the Exodus paradigm. Whereas, in fact, the call of this moment, and I do think we are in an exilic moment, the call of the church in this moment is a call to say, what does it mean to wake up anew to the reality and fullness of what God is really trying to do in the world, in which I'm not trying to escape from Babylon. I was I wanted and God understood the longing to escape Egypt, but not in the case of, of Babylon. Stay in Babylon, plant gardens, build houses, have children, do exactly the normal things that, that you are called to do. But now as you do those things domestically, now publicly seek the welfare of your oppressive city. And as they benefit from that, find their shalom, so you will find your shalom. This is completely counterintuitive. It's nuts, is, right? <laughs> exactly. It's, it's nuts. Yeah. And, and so it's understandable that we all feel like it's nuts. Who wants to do that? 
Um, except that the majority of the church in the majority of time in the majority of the world has been an exilic church. I mean, they have understood themselves to be an exile. You do not have to tell African-Americans that they are an exilic church in the United States. You don't have to tell people who have come from various places around the world who now exist in contexts where their color, whether they're Chinese or whether they're Latino, uh, puts them in contexts of of oppression of various kinds, economic, racial, social, educational, political, etc. In those contexts, they understand that they're exiles. It's the white church in particular that doesn't understand it's an exilic church. It just wants the, everything else to be conformed to us rather than for us to understand how we're meant to be remade in this context because we're called to raise, be risen, uh, raised from death to life. And the evidence of that is that we will do what God does, which is to love enemies. It, it strikes me that um, repentance is a big part of this too, and the practice of repentance. And, um, you know, uh, we're both uh, Protestant pastors, right? Martin Luther, uh, the first of his 95 theses was that all of life is repentance. And we, we talk about repentance. Um, maybe I'm just thinking about this because I'm getting ready to talk on <laughs> repentance at our church in an hour. But um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's one thing to talk about repentance as sort of the entrance into the Christian life. Um, it's another thing to think about repentance as the sum and substance of the Christian life. And being willing to sort of see our circumstances not as something we need to fight against, but as something God is using uh, to um, to draw us closer to Himself. And so our response then is to repent. So I guess the question I want to ask is, um, formationally, like how do we how do we do this in the life of the church? How do we how do we uh, how does the church help? us actually live as exiles rather than either kind of culture warriors or consumers. And I think too, to just also put another point on it, it's important that we often only think about repentance as a personal thing as well, right? And so there, there's a corporate identity here that's really important, I believe as well. But yeah, go ahead, Mark. That's cool. Well, just that I think the best gift that we've been given to, as a response to that is the gospels themselves. And I've often said we should never be more than five minutes away from rereading the gospels because, um, because in a way the best gift for the church to do what you're asking is, is for the church to really see again, how Jesus responds to people. And, and Jesus' response is one in which formation happens at close hand over time, in context of pain, with a dependency on God that is far beyond a presentation of human competency or skill. But we've tended to build the church on human competency and skill. Even, even our theology of gifts assumes that it's mostly an asset-oriented approach. I do believe in asset living, that is, genuinely affirming and receiving the great gifts of God and using the great gifts of God for what we should, what they should be used for. But how, what disciplines and forms those gifts to actually be an expression of God rather than a, a, an expression of the cultural priorities and values that we live in. And it's there that the, the imitation of Jesus, 
I think becomes so key in our formation. Are we really trying to live a Jesus-centric life? This is where I've I've wrestled as the leader of Fuller to try to figure out how do we want to hold the word evangelical? And I've said, well, what I think we mean by evangelical is an evangel-centric life, that is a life centered in the good news. And, and as long as we are being evangel-centric then and practicing that and practicing the outworking of that and not, as you say, actually just as a matter of personal uh, affirmation and experience, but as a collective experience of, of living in that context. So, you know, I've, I have preached these themes in many settings and I'm always away, aware of how many people seem to have both a longing for this and a terror of it, right? It's like, is, this does sound like the right good news and I find it terrifying. Um, hence the reason that I'm writing a book on fear. But, um, but I do think that the question then becomes, why is it so fearful? Because in fact, as Jesus said all along, it will require a kind of dying. And, and that's the part of the repentance that we like least and so forth. And it's not about getting into a wallowing pit of despair. It's about just coming to terms with the reality of how far we have to be changed. Yeah. That's really good. You know, as you as you're talking about fear, it I I'm thinking a bit of it seems like a lot of you know, the fear that we see out there in terms of the culture wars tends to be the the fueling factor, right, of of some of the fighting and and the grandstanding. Um I'm just reminded of Pete Weiner, who's a friend of yours, um how he he had a recent post in the Atlantic all about um kind of our, our self-deception and our tendency towards self-deception, you know, and I, and I'm also thinking of James Davison Hunter and his book in the nineties, right. On, on the culture wars. And he talks about the culture wars as a war to define the power to define reality. And so how do you see this connection between like a, a motivation of fear um, um, and this, this trying to like grasp out the power to define reality and how might a paradigm of exilic hope flip those things on their heads so that we can, you know, very fearfully, you know, but to, to actually live out that paradigm of exile in the church in America. Such a key question. And we would take several hours to adequately explore it, but (laughs) but I'll, I'll say a couple things. Um, I do think, again, this is where going back to the gospels, I'm not excluding the rest of the scriptures at all. I'm just focusing specifically because I think Jesus' teaching about the kingdom is what is this great reversal that you're describing. And that reversal seems to do with resorting power, reordering power. So the part of the gospel's purpose in our life is to is to rightly order power with that, with the central affirmation that Jesus is Lord as the cornerstone of that. And if if that is the cornerstone of our understanding of of where rightly ordered power begins, then too easily the church has immediately moved toward a kind of ecclesial-only vision of that power. Whereas I would want to start actually with it having eternal power and having universal power, not first about ecclesial power. It it the the power of the the reign of God is meant to be exquisitely beautifully manifest in the life of the people of God. But the Lordship of Jesus Christ does not pertain. He's not just Lord of the church. He's Lord of all. And I start there because I do think the large project 
the human project from the garden on is in part a project of rightly ordered power and the disorder of power. And hence, uh, so many writers, Augustine especially, but others talking about disordered love or disordered power as the central human crisis. And if we were to read today's newspaper or any other newspaper on any given day, it would be replete with stories about disordered power, about the abuses of power, about the failure to understand power. And then and then we're interested at it at a distance, but then it comes very near and and makes a claim. And this is where the church is meant to be the place where that claim becomes intimate, personal, communal, and where it calls us beyond our, our self-serving power into a kind of power and understanding of power that begins to reorder our sociology, reorders our priorities, reorders our perception of ourselves and our neighbor and, and of God. In a book that I wrote called The Dangerous Act of Loving Your Neighbor, we try to I try to tease out this way in which we misperceive one another, we misname one another, and then we mis we abuse one another in that sequence because having misperceived and misnamed, we feel justified in meeting out whatever kind of judgment toward our neighbor we want to give. But if we actually perceive them through the eyes of Jesus, if we actually perceived and named them through the, the in the way that Jesus does, son, daughter, as opposed to enemy, fraud, uh, or whatever ugly name we might think of, um, and then we began to live toward them and love toward them in a way that actually captured those kinds of names, it would it would reclaim us. So going back to your question, this these are the elements that it seems to me are the elements of how this comes together. The church often wants to see itself as we're just going to do our church project in a sectarian way and be that city set on the hill. And of course, whole ecclesiologies are built on that idea of the church. We don't expect anything of the heathen culture. Whereas I would, as a reformed theologian, I'd want to say, no, God is involved throughout the whole world in all kinds of different ways, continuously, and sometimes more freely than even in the lives of those who who confess Jesus to be Lord. He's still in the world to convict us of sin and judgment and righteousness. That work is still going on, even as the church does its life. And it may or may not healthily witness or testify to this kind of redeeming, recreating, um, reaffirming uh, the purposes of the, of the reign of God as a form of what will bring us the greatest thriving life and justice and mercy and kindness and beauty uh, in the world. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest 
and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Yeah, you know, and it, I love that. Um, help us understand, you know, this paradigm of exile. You know, if it's a reordering of our loves, a reordering of power, if it's death to self, it's renaming and reperceiving people. Um, you know, it's a whole nother reality from how we often go about living in the world. You know, I, I Bryce and I have just recently been chatting because he has recently reread uh, David Brooks's book, The Second Mountain, and we're just talking about that and being middle-aged and, <laughs> you know, moving from the, the mountain of achievement to the mountain of significance. But you can also think of this paradigm, paradigm of exile as moving like, oh, this is the late, this is the mountain of significance. And you can kind of just recapture, you know, even some of that achievement language into like meaning language. So how do we help, you know, as we think about what does it look like to be in exile in America in the 21st century as believers? What does that look like to not simply make that another paradigm, another way of thinking about achievement? Again, such an important question. There's the, there is, I would just say for starters, the question of where achievement fits in the, in the paradigm of God's purposes. Uh, so let's just use achievement as an issue. I do think that God has made us creatures who have the capacity to flower, to come to, f to the fullness of who we are. It's built into our biology. It's built into the world itself. It shows up in all kinds of different places. And and some forms of that we like, and some forms of that we reject, and some forms of it we try to avoid. But but in the end, there is this process. Now, is that process of development an achievement? Um, well, it is when we're facing challenges, which almost everybody faces, and when there's headwinds, and when we could easily get lost, and 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 whether we're going to stay uh, or remain focused on the things that actually matter most to God, which are not simply Bible verses, but the demonstrated life of goodness and beauty and justice in the world. So um, so there are achievements that really matter. Is a medical breakthrough an achievement that God intends? I, I would certainly say it's an achievement often that God blesses um, and that the blessing comes about because of faithful stewardship of our intellectual and scientific capacities, which lead to breakthroughs, right? But does God intend and need a world with academy awards i'd say mm, i'm not so sure that the world needs academy awards but but what is built into that is an acknowledgement of of the joy of celebration of of the acknowledgement of talent of the the delight in creativity right so there so i wouldn't want to be cavalier in my critique but, but is the point an award or is the point the award is meant to be an achievement of bringing a certain number of those factors together. So anyway, I'd want to sort of think through what I mean by achievement, what achievements matter most and why those matter. I think God would be full of celebration that we had achieved the capacity to be forgiving, that we had really achieved the capacity to be able to perceive my enemy as person every bit as beloved as I want to believe you are or I am. Those would be achievements of, of a spiritual kind that reorder the world by being able to lay down uh, the hostilities to be able to move in honesty, not in euphemisms and not in blindness or pretense, but in honesty 
into and through the thicket of of whatever the trouble and difficulty or pain or injustice may be and to see and move toward a world that is different than that that's that's an astounding thing um and and i do think that those are achievements that are meant to be breakthroughs the resurrection is clearly an achievement that is it's a breakthrough of of um of a kind that's meant to change all other breakthroughs um and and rightly order them in that sense um so what does it take i think it means for me it means realizing that first of all what has shaped and formed me is fundamentally 99 percent of the case going to be about the culture that's around me and the the world that i imbibe uh and the the millions upon millions these days of of bits and that are coming my way in every form of media and the world that i live in which tells me this is what matters come over here come over here see me see me see me see me see me see me uh, and and chat gpt is is in some ways only going to further extend that ai for certainly for certain is going to extend that um, not because i'm castigating all of that at all but because it's an example of saying i need to be wide-eyed eyes wide open heart and mind wide open to what are these things not so that i reject them from my point of view uh, but for the sake of actually trying to take a sober assessment of what they are and to understand and here i want to be humble about no, acknowledging the utter limits of our consciousness and of our uh, capacity for for virtue in the face of all that i'm not i'm not pretending i'm going to let the assault of the universe come upon <laughs> me and i'm going to stand <laughs> against it that's that's the height of hubris i'm not meaning that i'm meaning insofar as an ordinary human being under ordinary circumstances can take an ordinary but intentional uh effort at trying to understand the world and then to say okay so th that's the data that i'm getting but what's the data uh, as it were, that God is giving me about the character of my life, about the meaning of my neighbor who might really irritate me or uh, the person in my job who who feels uh, like they're just a fundamental racist or a person in my uh, in my children's school who who is a bully, let's say, or whatever it might be, right? How do I how do I gaze in a way behold them long enough so that I am not just seeing the bully? Um, I'm probably seeing a kid that has some pretty significant issues in their own life. And that doesn't mean that I, that they get to bully my child, but it does mean that I am thinking about them in a different way than simply you bully. Um, that, that may be a true statement, but it's not the only statement to say about that child. Mark, you talk about the beauty of exile. And, and I think that, um, uh, most people would probably not look at exile as something that's beautiful, something that I would want to move towards. Uh, how do we help develop, how do we help people develop an appetite to become a peculiar people? I mean, how, like, how does that actually happen? I, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, so many of our, our listeners are, are leaders in, in one context or another. And I, I feel like, you know, as a pastor, I can get up and I can preach my guts out about how good this is. And 
and then it just feels like maybe it falls flat. Like how, how do we actually create, I mean, you, you just mentioned like it's about the cultures that we're in. How do we cultivate that sort of appetite? Um, well, I, for me, it's always been Romans 12, one and two that are the cornerstone of this. As uh, one translation puts it, I beg you, my brothers and sisters, that's itself worth noting. I beg you, my brothers and sisters, as an act of intelligent worship, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which is not brain, it's not affect, it's whole being, your whole perception, that you may be transformed by the renewing of your perception, your mind, and and that that will lead you on then into doing the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. So does the church, do we in our preaching and pastoral leadership, et cetera, take seriously enough what the reformation of our minds means? And do we set up practices in a congregational rhythm of life in which we're trying to rehearse that? So one of the things about public worship is that it can be a tool of saying, as a call to worship almost, why are we here? We're here to submit ourselves to a process of being renewed in our minds by our ability to rightly order the power of the universe, by remembering that God is God and I'm not, by remembering that, that we are the object of God's deepest compassion and mercy, that people that would utterly reject what we're here to do are also the focus of God's mercy and justice and love, and that we need to pray, we need to confess, we need to lament, we need to turn, and then we need to give ear to the word of God, which calls us into a new reality, which is only possible because of nothing less than the death and resurrection of Jesus. So this transition that we're talking about of learning to see beauty in exile is a resurrection vision. It's not a self-improvement vision. <laughs> this is not about how do I get to feel better about myself and the world? This is about how do I capture and demonstrate resurrection life by seeing and being in places that we wouldn't otherwise go with people that we may not otherwise ever want to be with in a way that is full of generosity, full of the capaciousness of God's heart, full of the truth of the gospel, full of the call to righteousness and justice. Those are things that will bring flourishing life. Will that be rejected? Absolutely. Will it mean hostility? It will. Will it mean persecution and suffering? It will. Um, do we seek those things? We do not. But, but we are going to live out of a different energy zone, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ, than out of the, the zone of our sociology and all of its cues of approval and success and everything else. But that is, that is not the way the church has organized itself. Well, and it's, it, it, it strikes me as I'm sitting here um, listening to you talk that it's really the Exodus paradigm that, that sort of suggests if we do these things properly, it's going to work. Yes. yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like we will see the fruit immediately. And yes. that is so much a part of how the, the American church thinks how I think. <laughs> right. You know, it's how our if culture I could thinks. just do these things properly, then our, you're going to see the fruit of it very quickly. And that's, right. that's not what happens in the, in the exile. 
Indeed, because it's, and the primary evidence of that is it's precisely what does not happen to Jesus. So if he is the perfect exile, then the trajectory of that life did not lead to uh, apparent abundance. It led to all the challenges that we know so deeply in the gospels themselves. And the church has studiously avoided that narrative. And um, it's like, who wants to be depressive? Who, who wants to talk about death? Who wants to end up figuring out how to get a crown of thorns um, when we'd rather have an Academy Award? So it's it's really, it really is a deep recreation. Um, I, I don't think we have to beat ourselves. This does not lead to self-flagellation, uh, I want to suggest. It's not therefore saying, oh gosh, I'm not getting there. Therefore, let's beat myself up even more. I think the way of Jesus is different than that. I think the way of Jesus is to say, yes, it does bring about honesty and truth, and that requires, therefore, confession and lament. But it also does require uh, repentance and a beginning in a new way of life. And, and in that process, it comes out of someone doing something for us, which we cannot do ourselves. So again, we don't try to live as faithful exiles as though we are going to be Jesus. We live, we follow the example of Jesus because we want to become like him, but we know that that will be an eternal work. And yet that's not meant to be an excuse for today, not saying, okay, I want to lean further into kingdom life. I, I do want to have a heart that is more like the heart and mind of Jesus. I want to use every day as an opportunity. You know, Calvin uses this language that the church is a schoolhouse. How does the church become a schoolhouse that takes its formation seriously? Not myopically, not navel-gazingly, uh, but a church that is learning after God how to be people that are that look more and more like Jesus Christ. I mean, uh, without overdoing this analogy, and I want to be uh, cautious in this, there are Christian leaders who in their passing uh, are lifted up as, as examples. And I'll use people that, that I happen to have known deeply and personally, two examples of people that are particularly public examples of this. One would be John Stott and the other would be the, the recent death of Tim Keller. Now, neither of those people would in any way present themselves as people who were perfect. They would be vividly aware and articulate about just how imperfect they were. And at the same time, the benefit, the overflow of their longing and desire to both seek and live out of the grace of God that produces a new life was true of both of them. And both of them were very different than the backgrounds that they grew up in. Both of them uh, lived and demonstrated transformed lives. And, and they didn't live the same sociology that their backgrounds might have cultivated in them or that the secular cultural background that they might have lived into would have ever fostered. They, they were seeking to live a peculiar life that looks like the righteousness and character, the love and gentleness and kindness and mercy and goodness and truth-telling uh, of, of Jesus Christ. And, and so in, our, in their death, we don't see perfection at all. We see a person longing to become all that God will one day make them to be, and which, uh, which, but which gives us a foretaste of that deposit of the Holy Spirit that is the God's in sort of down payment on a work of grace that's going to make us like Jesus Christ.
you know, as we um, wrap up our conversation, I'm curious to hear briefly, you know, both in your own life and then how you might think about encouraging leaders listening in who feel kind of stuck in this middle ground, you know, between longing and desiring this life of exile and repentance and a sense of being unencumbered from the cares of the world in the best possible way. Um, and this sense of if, if I actually live like that, um, gosh, won't I just be invisible or, um, die, right? Or unemployed. <laughs> Death, right. Or, or unemployed. Past, <laughs> right, unemployed, passed by, you name it. You know, so what have, what have been maybe a way for, how have you encouraged yourself or what communal practices have been important for you that you might want to pass on to some Christian leaders? Well, I do think it is incumbent on all of us to do everything we can to be with a kind of fellowship, a small fellowship that hopefully if we're married is true inside our marriage, but also true inside a collection of, of friends. I'm thinking of 12 or less people here. I may be thinking of three people. I'm thinking of a, a small handful of people that become sort of a beachhead of this, that call us back again and again and again to a life that is greater than the one that we are uh, perhaps wanting to be conformed to for all kinds of reasons, which aren't necessarily all bad, but which can, um, can sometimes misdirect us and worse. So do I have a beachhead of people so that I'm not doing life in my own terms? I, I do think many have observed, you know, if if God hates all the same people I hate, then it can't be God that I'm actually talking about because that's just that's just not the reality. So how do I find people who are going to be honest with me, hopefully different from me? I mean, I have to say it has been an enormously important thing for me to be in the closest of fellowship with people who do not share my sociology or my race or necessarily my gender, who walk the long, long road of discipleship together, where we're not just comparing our sociologies, we're comparing uh, our, our individual and collective call to be conformed to Christ. And how do we do that in different ways? And the benefit of doing that in, in an intimate, long-standing relationship with a small group of people who can help enlarge our heart, mind, soul, and strength in the ways that that can uh, can help develop is amazing. So I would say that's absolutely a critical ingredient. I think another critical ingredient is really the, the place of both private and public worship. So that's another thing. I think another thing is how do we grow our own heart um, and, and, and understand what that means before God. There's all kinds of various spiritual disciplines that we could use to think in that way, but I'll just use that as a as a general phrase. Um, I think the other another thing is how do I stimulate a Christian imagination um, so that I'm not I'm not just rehearsing the, the limited plausibility structures that have to do with what's been handed to me. Instead, the plausibility structures of a god of surprise of an unexpectedness. Right. So I think, for example, of of a woman who I knew very well, know very well, who was caught really in a kind of Christian subgroup that I would call a cult. And uh, it was quite uh, abusive, and but it did so in a way that was supposedly about Christian growth. One of the exercises was that you were to get in a circle and every person, you were to hand, uh, all the people in the circle were handed a, a popsicle sticks. And uh, and then the person themselves was to go around and stand face to face in front of each of the people in a group of about 12 or 15 people 
and then the person could could only be given uh, popsicle sticks if the people chose them. And if they didn't choose them, they were set, meant to say to the person, I do not choose you. You can imagine for a, a person in any emotionally vulnerable context, this was meant to be like a leatherizing experience, right? Uh, build up your leather in being able to uh, handle rejection. Okay, this sends her into a, a full um, psychological breakdown, uh, several years in recovery. She eventually becomes part of the staff of the church that I was leading at the time. Uh, for a long time, she doesn't tell this story. I knew it, but she hadn't told it with others. She tells it to a little group of staff members, and they're just completely overwhelmed by the nature of the story. And uh, we came back from lunch together, and we were standing outside her door, and without anyone's awareness except the person who did it, when she opened the door, her office was completely packed with popsicle sticks that had been dropped all over every piece of furniture and on the floor. It was just staggering. And we just stood there and and all just wept, right? It was just like a, a moment of weeping. What had happened? The, the facts on the ground had been translated into an imaginative way of trying to portray that actually she is not only chosen, but overwhelmingly chosen. And in a nonverbal way, she could receive that more than if we'd all just said, oh, but no, 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 we really do choose you, right? That, that, that was important, of course, that had its place. But to suddenly stand looking at your office with nothing but popsicle sticks in light of what I've just told you was one of the biggest pieces of her healing in, in the whole journey, right? Remarkable. That's a Christian imagination. Now imagine doing that in cities, imagine doing that in church contexts, imagine doing that in neighborhoods, imagine doing that in your family, where, where the actions, yes, but also the imaginative actions that say, I not only see you, but I, I, I deeply hear and take into my own being the narrative that you have just shared. I think that's exilic living. It's not about showing some kind of argument for those people shouldn't have done wrong. They shouldn't have done wrong. That's a different part of the argument. <laughs> but in this case, what she needed was the affirmation of God's love in an unexpected way. This is why I've spent a lot of time over the years thinking about Emily Dickinson's poem that begins with the line, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. And in the poem, she goes on to say, the head-on truth is just overwhelming. I can't, I can't, we can't bear it. It will undo us. But the truth told slant allows it to find its space in our lives in a way that's so different. And I think Exodus people tend to want to just keep declaring the Exodus and the promised land. Exile people have fewer options. And it means that I want to know the truth. I see, but I see through a glass darkly. I see the truth, but I see it darkly. And therefore slant in humility, acknowledging um, its limitations and boundaries. That that to me is a, is a very key part of how we talk to ourselves about God, how we talk to ourselves about this journey of exilic life, how we nurture that in the lives of the people, tell it slant, be kind, be generous, plant gardens, Mary, and seek the welfare of your enemies. 
Amen. Mark, thank you so much for uh, talking with us today. I um, am just struck by kind of what you what you just said there about uh, the importance of Christian imagination. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the gospel is not you know, an argument to be won or to be, you know, that we're going to argue people into. Um, but um, I think what you're helping us do here by giving it an alternative paradigm is not saying this is how we win uh, the culture war arguments, but this is how we can follow faithfully after Jesus. Right. And bear witness. Exactly. Which is different than winning. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Amen. Yeah. Much different. Oh, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. My my joy, and it's with gratitude. Thank you for inviting me. I hope uh, this finds its way to people who are hungry for this good news, and I hope it lands as the good news. I think it actually is. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you. The Cartographers is hosted by Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales. It's edited by Nathan Michelle. The Cartographers is a production of the Willowbray Institute. Find out more at willowbray.org.